0: Hello, this is John Anthony West, welcoming you to Magical Egypt, a Symbolist tour.
1: So far we've seen example after example of the puzzling fact that the further back in time we look, the higher and higher was the wisdom and ability of the ancients. This trend continues when we look even further back to the shadowy, prehistoric time predating dynastic Egypt.
0: Perhaps we have misread the entire process of history and we have not gone in a straight, linear line from ancient, primitive beginnings to our sophisticated, progressive selves with our hydrogen bombs and striped toothpaste, our pollution and our nerve gas. Ancient Egypt, unquestionably, was at its height at its beginning and went on a downhill path through the long 3,000 years of its history. That decline certainly extended through the Roman Empire and arguably down to our present day.
1: When we return, what was the mysterious relationship between the ancients and the stones? A new discovery from the earliest known archaeological site in Egypt may prove once and for all the ancient and high source for mankind. ancients thought they could go to heaven only on the two solstitial days, because in order to change trains comfortably, the constellations that serve as gates to the Milky Way must stand upon the Earth, meaning that they must rise heliacally either at the equinoxes or at the solstices. The galaxy is a very broad highway, but even so, there must have been some bitter millennia when neither gate was directly available any longer, the one hanging in mid-air, the other having turned into a submarine entrance. The ancients no doubt would have considered the troubles of these our times, the overpopulation, the working iniquity and in secret, as an inevitable prelude to a new tilting,
2: a new world age. Welcome back to episode 40 of the Alpha Male Buddhist from Brooklyn podcast. I'm your host Miguel. Today uh, this on the podcast, this is episode 40. We're going to continue with the series uh, Magical Egypt by John Anthony West. Again, this is for educational purposes only. Um, so this is episode 40 and we're going to continue with the episode part three of the series. This is an eight episode series so this is part three of the series of John Anthony West and uh, hey I just want to mention I'm getting listeners from all over the world Norway Germany a lot of listeners from Great Britain all over the place Japan I even got a listener in Cambodia I mean I could go on and on just so many Australia starting to listen to me now so I appreciate all the love and I appreciate all the listeners drop me an email. I I love to get emails from from people from other countries. I'm here in Brooklyn, but I'd like to get emails from everybody and get a little feedback. It seems like as I'm downloading these, I'm getting a lot of listeners picking them up just as I'm dropping them this series. So that's great right now. Here Brooklyn time, it's 1230 in the evening. It's like midnight and this is like uh, uh, Wednesday evening. So it's a nice summer night here and I'm really enjoying this podcasting. I'm digging it. It's a lot of fun. And I'm getting much better. If you go back to episode one and compare me to now, I'm, I'm getting good with the audacity in my content. So, you know, I, I appreciate all the listeners because that's what motivates me to, to put these episodes out. I've, I've been dropping a lot of episodes lately. And uh, in the future, I plan on doing some where I speak more and kind of uh, assimilate and kind of just uh, give some input and some speaking from myself. But for right now, there's some content I want to put down. I feel that people are enjoying it and listening to it. And I think it's information that needs to get out and people listen to. And the funny thing is I'm getting also feedback from some people in some of the more underdeveloped countries where they don't really, you know, have uh, that much, you know, to see DVDs or, you know, enjoy things that they can watch. or they at least get to enjoy to listen to a lot of the content that I'm putting out. So this is this is great for everyone. So, yeah, man, I rambled enough. Let's hopefully you're enjoying this. You know, send me some emails and let me know, give me some feedback. So, this is episode 40, and we're going to go to part three of the eight part series of Magical Egypt with John Anthony West. Let's get into it.
1: Perhaps the most startling of the recent discoveries in Egypt has been made at Nabta Playa, the Nabta Playa Stone Circle lies in the middle of a particularly harsh and foreboding part of the Sahara Desert. Although it had been thoroughly catalogued and meticulously measured, it would be many years later before the complex astrophysical function of this mysterious site would be discovered. Astrophysicist Thomas Brophy discusses this revolutionary discovery in his book The Origin Map. Discovery* of a prehistoric, megalithic astrophysical map and sculpture of the universe. It's becoming clear in the new
0: sub-science or sub-discipline of archaeoastronomy that sophisticated astronomical knowledge existed in very, very ancient times. Beginning with a book called Hamlet's Mill, published in 1968, by MIT historians of science Giorgio de Santillana and Hertha van Dekend. It was found that extremely sophisticated astronomy was coded into the mythologies and legends of very ancient peoples. Perhaps most significant is that the ancients recognized and employed what is called a procession of the equinoxes in their myths, in their legends, and in their constructions. In the hands of Thomas Brophy, physicist and archaeoastronomer, we see that Nabta Playa is not just oriented to the solstices, which would already tell us that there was a fairly sophisticated astronomy in place, but rather that it encodes astronomical information so sophisticated that it's only in the past couple of decades that our own astronomy has been able to provide us with this kind of information. These crude stones, some of them in the form of a circle, and others in outlying megaliths, other stones buried in the silts, still other pieces of carved bedrock, in Brophy's analysis become a kind of living planetarium, a stone observatory in which these ancient Egyptians could keep track of the movements of the heavens over periods of
1: thousands of years. We met Mr. Brophy near his home in Encinitas, California, to demonstrate his findings.
3: Okay, we're looking at a mock-up of the calendar circle at Napta Playa. The the mock-up is to the correct size, it's about 12 feet across, and these standing stones are very roughly to the the size of the stones that were found there. Uh, The real circle, the stones are all a little bit different size, but they're roughly like this, and they're in the positions that we've laid them out here. And we've, we've marked the, the circular edge stones with these uh, uh, beach cobblestones. First, the obvious thing are these two gates or windows or sight lines on the edges of the circle. One, I'm standing on the north-south sight line window. I'm standing on the north end, looking south. The other sight line window is the uh, uh, northeast to southwest window. So you got these two windows. And it turns out that that one points very well to the summer solstice sunrise. So on summer solstice you would see the sunrise, you could see through the uh, gate if you were actually watching it, or you could stand and watch the uh, shadows, marking it like a, a sun dagger, perhaps, uh, uh, showing the summer solstice sun rising through that gate. And This one you could call a meridian sight line window, the meridian being the north-south line. So what I wanted to determine was what's the meaning of those six standing stones in the center of the circle. And it turns out, since we're thinking astronomically, if you just think of a possible star viewing diagram, there's something that fits really nicely with what those, those stones could mean. At the time that the calendar circle was used, about 6000 BC at the day of the year identified by the, the, the circle being the summer solstice sunrise, the, the summer solstice day before sunrise when when the sky is still dark. If you're standing here looking south on the meridian side line window you would have seen in the sky the three stars of Orion's Belt in the location with the configuration and the angle designated by the star-viewing diagram, by those three stones right there. And they match very well. They're at the right angle, they're at the right azimuth in the sky, and it's at the right time, just before summer solstice sunrise. So that's my uh, hypothesis, is that that's what those those meaning of those three uh, stones is. And so you've got a window of applicability for when the circle applied to uh, uh, the the meaning of, of those central stones. And that window of applicability is about 6400 BC to about 4900 BC. And that window uh, uh, matches very well with the radiocarbon dates that were found uh, for the campfires and things that, in this location. So that's a very, very good match. Now, I wanted to consider what the other three stones were. And they're in the configuration that makes you want to think of Orion's uh, uh, head and shoulders. There aren't that many three sets of three bright stars in a configuration like that in the sky. And uh, there's Orion's shoulder stars, the very bright Betelgeuse and Bellatrix, and uh, the head star Mesa, that, that, that makes you want to think that maybe that's what those are. But if you look on a star chart, or if you look in the sky, you see that when the Orion's belt stars were at this angle, at the correct angle matching the diagram, the shoulder stars of Orion were angled way off. They're angled way the other way, like that. So it doesn't match. That's not what you see, would have seen on, on the meridian. But considering further uh, whether that could be them, the, the second point is that the Orion's belt stars match not only during the radiocarbon date of the calendar circle and during the right time of, of year and the right time of day as designated by the sight line windows, but they're actually at an extremum. They're when the angle of their, their angle on the meridian is at its minimum throughout the whole 25,000 year precession cycle. Okay, so the angle at which you see a constellation in the sky on the meridian changes over the years due to the precession and they go through a whole tilting cycle every 25,000 years, roughly. And so, the Orion's belt stars match the viewing diagram very perfectly uh, in the window 6400 to 4900 BC when they're at their minimum tilt. So if we look at the, in the sky, as you would have seen, the the shoulder stars of Orion, when the constellation was at its maximum tilt the other way, they would have matched this configuration in the star viewing diagram. So that's a hypothesis, is that's what all six of those central stones mean. The Orion's belt stars at uh, one extremum in the window of time 6400 to 4900 BC, and the shoulder and head star of Orion at the other extremum of the precession tilt uh, around 16,500 BC. You would have gone through a, a similar viewing sequence where you would have seen the shoulder and head star of Orion with that configuration on the meridian at the right place as seen in the in the diagram and at the right time this time as marking the winter solstice sunset rather than the summer solstice sunrise. So that's the hypothesis now we've got the meaning of all the six center stones of the calendar circle. Uh, a good hypothesis for that. And there's other interesting things about this circle. If you plot, over plot, the uh, constellation as it is in the sky with the map on of the stones on the ground, they the, the feet of Orion, when the head and shoulders match, are on the circle. And Orion's upstretched uh, uh, bow arm is also on the circle. And when the belt stars match, you get another set of matching, uh, roughly the right size except the bigger a bigger man figure. So there are many correspondences uh, corroborating that that this could be the meaning of these six central stones. Now the further corroboration for the hypothesis that these six stones are the belt and shoulders and headstars of Orion uh, at the times indicated by the rest of the calendar circle comes from the rest of the to Playa site, where you have these long baseline megalith alignments. So like we're here north looking south, the calendar circle is actually in a complex of large megalithic stones that are on astronaut, actually stellar aligned, uh, a sequence of stellar aligned uh, megalithic alignments south of the calendar circle. And you had six lines of megaliths, three northerly lines and three southerly lines. The distance from the center of those megaliths was roughly around a thousand meters, varying from a few hundred to about eleven hundred meters. And the calendar circle is essentially in that complex at Navta Playa. And those uh, long baseline megaliths, it turns out, point to the same six stars at the same time in a repeated way and very specific way that corroborates that this is probably the meaning of, of these these stars here. Okay, you see the guy with the reflector light down the beach about 800 meters. That demonstrates the distances involved in the long baseline megalith alignments that point to stars right next to uh, the calendar circle at Napta Playa. Okay, on the beach we demonstrated the distances involved in the megalith lines of megalus near the calendar circle <coughs> at Nabta Playa and uh, I noted that they point to stars and the stars they point to are the six, same six stars that are uh, designated in the diagram the star viewing diagram in the center of the calendar circle and these six lines I first looked at them uh, in comparison to the six stars in the star viewing diagram at 6300 BC, just after the start of applicability of the Starvian diagram, and I found that they're rather close. Some of them uh, uh, align at that time, and all six of the lines are are close, um, but they're they're a little bit off. So when I saw that they were close, I I, uh, I thought, oh, that that could uh, verify that my my uh, interpretation of the Star viewing diagram of the calendar circle was right that those are the six stars uh, designated. Uh, If only they had all aligned at exactly the same time, I thought that would have proven my case that those six uh, uh, stones in the diagram were were those stars. Uh, So I thought, ah, too bad they're not all at exactly the same date. Then I I looked a little bit closer though at uh, what was going on astronomically because they were fairly close to the six lines, and. Uh, I found that they are uh, uh, all around that time, close to what's called uh, heliacal rising, vernal equinox heliacal rising. Uh, what what vernal equinox heliacal rising is, it just means that on the first day of spring, a star rises together over the horizon with the sun. So I found that those six stars were all somewhere, you know, not too far from vernal equinox heliacal rising uh, at that time. So then I looked at, I considered that that might be uh, uh, the the meaning of the long baseline alignments. So I looked at each one in sequence its uh, actual date of vernal equinox heliacal rising and found that each one of the six stars designated in the calendar circle diagram align with one of the megalith alignments and its vernal equinox like a rising date. so that given finding out that that is the meaning of those uh... uh this megalithic complex with such uh, with such high likelihood uh... led me to keep uh, uh, studying what else might be meant by the dot di- the, the megalithic uh, uh... structures and the next obvious thing to look at is well if you look at a diagram of the of the layout of the megaliths you first note that well there are these very clear lines of megaliths, but they aren't all at a uniform or even a uniformly patterned distance from the central radiating hub. They, they appear uh, uh, not very elegantly placed in that regard as far as distance, even though they're very precisely in lines. So the next obvious question is, well, why, why would these uh, designers of the site have, have made these distances kind of unattractive when they were so elegantly uh, placing the alignments and the other aspects and it occurred to me to look for for other meaning for the, the distances to go along with the alignment meanings and the distances from the central hub I first looked for the possibility that they might uh, represent the brightness of the stars um, maybe the brightest star uh, Betelgeuse would be the closest one or the farthest one as far as represented by the megaliths but uh, they weren't it didn't work out that way uh, that didn't seem to be the pattern and I, I consider some other things. And finally, uh, just for fun, I looked up the actual astrophysical distances to those stars. You can find it on the Hipparchos uh, Satellite Observatory website. They're, they're re- very recently measured very accurately. And uh, I was surprised to find that the actual astrophysical distances uh, are represented by the distances on the ground of the stones in in each line for its Star that it represents. And that is a, perhaps the first really astonishing aspect of the Napta Playa They match up uh, very well. In fact, our knowledge of uh, some of these six stars' distances, especially the further ones, the Orion's Belt stars, is, is not that good. We have uh, sizably quoted uh, uh, standard error deviation in the, in, the, in the locations of those. Within the standard error deviation of our knowledge of those, the, the fit is in fact very good.
1: Brophy follows the clues to a greater and greater realization of a profoundly advanced knowledge of our universe from a time when traditional dating shows human civilization had yet to begin. If Brophy's interpretation is correct, it may signal a radical paradigm shift in our understanding of our ancient past.
3: So, the uh, megalithic complex keeps begging analysis.
1: The ancient obsession with the stars takes its place among the many other misunderstood practices of these mysterious ancients, initially misunderstood as acts and works of primitive superstition. In almost every case, when advances in our own science raised our understanding to a sufficient level, we were forced into reclassification of these ancient practices, not as acts and works of primitive superstition, but instead as evidence of an extremely high degree of sophistication, development and a deep knowledge of the innermost secrets of our universe. As evidence of a high civilization from pre-antiquity begins to mount, the question arises, if there was a distant golden age, what happened to it?
0: There can be no doubt about the catastrophic event or events that put an end to the last ice age. It's thought that it might have been an asteroid or a comet, something of that sort, but that the event happened, that there is no doubt. Almost overnight, the woolly mammoths, the giant rhinoceroses, the saber-toothed tigers went extinct. All paleoclimatologists, paleontologists who study these matters are agreed on that point. The big issue, was there a sophisticated civilization that went down with that catastrophe? Paleontologist Robert Dunlap discusses this catastrophic event and the conditions around it that may have led to the demise of that lost civilization.
4: Hi, Robert Dunlap we're here at the uh, world-famous La Brea Tar Pits what's really unique about this area is the way that everything was so perfectly preserved at the end of the Pleistocene era now the Pleistocene was between 10,800 years and 12,000 years what you find here is just a great collection a whole slew of very unique creatures that all went extinct about 10,000 to 12,000 years ago. It's a very unique site. The preservation of the fossils and all of the other types of evidence that are necessary to put together and to assemble a a framework for a, a specific period of time known as the Pleistocene, the evidence is perfectly preserved right here. There's evidence of hominids or prehistoric people that go back as far as 10,000 years. uh, And they've been perfectly preserved because of the tar or the asphalt that is uh, common around this particular area. So along with that, uh, they've been able to determine what these people ate uh, because there's the evidence of uh, the plant life Uh, from the seeds all the way to little insects. And oddly enough, one of the most common uh, fossils here is a beetle, uh, and a very large beetle. So, uh, this is the perfect place to go and get evidence about the Pleistocene period and why different uh, species, from plants, animals, to humans became extinct. Behind me, is one of the most famous extinct creatures. It's a Glossotherium which is actually just a giant sloth. Now along with Glossotherium there was Woolly Mammoth, Jefferson Mammoth, Imperial Mammoth, and these really enormous creatures of 12,000 years ago that went extinct people believe from a type of uh, glacial period or Ice Age. In the geologic record there is evidence for eight major ice ages. Eight major periods of glaciation within the last 700,000 years. One of the compelling theories about mass extinction for the Pleistocene and in this area in particular is glaciation. There definitely is uh, evidence for glaciers as well as a ice age Uh, that affected all of this area. There's very strong and compelling evidence for the uh, growth and the spread of these ice sheets. Glaciers have a very powerful way in the way they uh, move the boulders and the rocks that are left behind. You'll see the evidence of them being very rounded. And when you go out you see this and it's very pronounced Uh, In any area that has had uh, glaciation, it's a very common sight to see rounded boulders and that kind of evidence close by. Along with part of this theory that I find really compelling uh, is the evidence always that we read around the, the whole world. There's always a story about a great flood. There's always about a great deluge. Uh, where I was recently in uh, New Zealand as well as in Australia, the Aborigines uh, have a very unusual story that they talk about during their dream time when they had a huge, a huge uh, flood. And you go out into the outback, you see the evidence. You see the way rocks and things have just been like washed and stripped clean clear. You go to uh, South America, and you read about the when the Incas uh, talk about a great flood. And how was that created? What caused this, this type of uh, condition? Well, there is another theory about what could cause that. Now, a lot of scientists call uh, not asteroids, but comets, dirty snowballs. And it's been theorized and speculated that maybe most of the water content on our own planet was brought here by the bombardment of comets. And we have cometary impact evidence all over the planet. We were just discussing asteroidal extinction and asteroidal impact and how it caused a mass extinction on this planet. The most famous extinction event is the dinosaur extinction 64.7 million years ago in June. The compelling evidence is right there at what is called the KT boundary. At the KT boundary, you find the fossils of dinosaur, you find iridium, which is a very rare element on the planet, and you find microtectites, you find shock quartz crystals, and all of this has been Uh, validated through Dr. Walter Alvarez Dr. Walter Alvarez at the University of California Berkeley Dr. Frank Asaro at the Lawrence Livermore Laboratories in Menlo Park uh, along with Dr. Jack Wolf who was able to pinpoint it to the month of June. He pinpointed it to the month of June by finding the fossil evidence of plants. 64.7 million years ago in June there was evidence of lotus and water lily plants being uh, hit and struck by this large bolide that left the evidence of not only shock quartz crystals but microtectites embedded in the flowers of these uh, water lilies. So these water lilies as well as lotus plants will only flower in the month of June and that's how they were able to determine that particular date. But aside from that uh, there have been other mass extinction events going back that have been caused absolutely by the same signature evidence of iridium, microtectites, tectites, shock quartz crystals, and some of the other noble uh, iridium elements, palladium, gold, platinum, those all uh, are part of the signature evidence of these boundary events. Going back, we had the Jurassic-Triassic boundary, then another very famous one, which is the Permian-Triassic boundary. Now, what's phenomenal about the Permian-Triassic boundary is 96% of all species became extinct within a one day period of time. That's an amazing find, 96% of all species, which means obviously only 4% survived. When we were sitting on the boundary there in New Zealand, the Permian-Triassic, how could they disappear? They literally disappear at a knife's edge. Imagine this scenario
0: an ice age that holds much of the Northern Hemisphere in its grip for thousands of years. Yet there is in place, perhaps globally, certainly in Egypt, an advanced and sophisticated civilization. It is this that will give rise to Plato's story of Atlantis and to the similar accounts in the legends and mythologies of peoples around the world. And then catastrophe strikes. Perhaps it is a comet or an asteroid that hits the Earth. Chaos follows. In Siberia and North America, millions of large land animals, woolly mammoths, rhinoceroses, saber-toothed tigers, die instantly and become extinct. Siberia, formerly temperate, becomes tundra. North America and Canada, frozen in the ice age, go into meltdown. Glaciers miles thick on freeze, raising sea levels 300 feet, drowning everything that was formerly at the seashore or at sea level. But a few human beings manage to survive and make their way to safe ground, carrying with them as much of their knowledge as they possess. They manage to pass this knowledge on down perhaps for thousands of years, even though they live in what we might call primitive conditions. Though even these societies are currently being reconsidered and systematically upgraded by today's archaeologists. The dates of civilization keep being pushed backward, even in academic circles. An appreciation of the knowledge available to these ancient cultures goes through an equally systematic transformation. Then around the same time when conditions permit, around 3000 to 4000 BC, sophisticated civilizations arise simultaneously in India, China, Mesopotamia, Egypt, Mesoamerica. In Egypt it takes but a few generations for the relatively crude artwork, the simple mud brick buildings and hieroglyphs to rise to a level of perfection of execution that will never be surpassed, and seldom equaled anywhere on Earth in the centuries to come.
1: The catastrophic effects were felt by all, and the few survivors kept the story alive for their descendants, passing it on with the other remnants of the once mighty civilization of the Golden Age. Its most esoteric and fundamental secrets protected in a shroud of myth and legend, a cocoon or time capsule that would survive the ages and many twists and turns in language and understanding that would ensue. The apparent reverse evolution seen in ancient Egypt is a contradiction of the traditional Western model of linear progress culminating in modern man. However, when compared to another alternative model of human history, the yugas, the decline from a distant golden age through dynastic Egypt and into our troubled modern times begins to make sense. The Indian system of the yugas explains a vast cosmic cycle, which like the changing of the seasons on a grand metaphysical scale causes mankind to periodically bloom and flourish and then drift back into sleep until the awakening and return of the next grand cycle Walter Crutton discusses these vast celestial cycles and their relationship with the ebb and flow of human consciousness ability and evolution
5: the yugas are uh, long-term chronology system that's accredited to the ancient Indian culture the Indus people of the Indus Valley and it is a uh, mechanism which enables civilization man to uh, time man's patterns here on earth over very long periods of time and just as we have a a day which determines uh, man's activities in any given 24-hour period with its periods of light and darkness and this is based on a celestial phenomena of the earth turning on its axis and just as we have a year uh, the four seasons caused by another celestial phenomena the tilted earth going around the sun so too do the ancients say that we have a very very long cycle that has its seasons of mankind if you will when there is a rise and fall in civilization and they break this into two periods and that's an ascending cycle of 12,000 years and a descending cycle of 12,000 years and these two cycles themselves are broken into four periods. The four periods in the uh, Greek civilization are iron, bronze, silver, and golden age with the iron being uh, the very darkest period and the uh, golden age being the age of enlightenment. Plato spoke about this cycle. He actually called it the great year. The Indians called these uh, four periods the Kali Yuga the Dwapara-yuga, the Treta-yuga, and the Satya-yuga. The yugas have specific characteristics. The Iron Age, or the Kali-yuga, is a time in the cycle of man when he is only aware of material objects, uh, that which he can feel and touch and uh, perceived through his five senses and obviously it's a very brutal age when man isn't really aware of uh, finer forces, uh, doesn't have very good spiritual concepts and uh, just sort of pillages and plunders if you will and that is of course uh, what happened uh, after the great civilizations of the last golden age fell. And we all know that uh, there's wonderful uh, traces of that civilization in the uh, ancient Egyptian culture, uh, in the ancient Indian culture, the ancient Chinese, the uh, whole megalithic uh, ruins uh, speak of a a vast civilization. And all these ancient cultures, Mesopotamia, Babylonia, uh, Mesoamerica, all declined in the last uh, descending age, down through the Golden Age, the, uh, the Silver Age, the Bronze Age, into this dark Kali Yuga period. And the bottom point was about 500 A.D., uh, which uh, coincided roughly with the final collapse of the, f- of the last civilization, in the Western world, and that was uh, the Roman uh, culture. And we muddled around in the very darkest age for about another 1,200 years until uh, we hit the Dwapara Yuga. And the Dwapara, Depar- the or Bronze Age, is a time when man becomes aware of finer forces. He becomes aware of uh, molecules. and uh, principles that that uh, govern motions. He becomes aware of electricity. As a matter of fact, the Dwapara Yuga is often called the electrical age. And you can see, uh, just over the last 100 years or so, how many electrical uh, types of inventions have been developed from radio, television, semiconductors, computers. Uh, almost an intrusion in our lives nowadays. The, this time uh, between the Kali and the Dwapara Yuga uh, was, was uh, typified by a lot of rapid advancements in knowledge of finer forces, and we tend to uh, call that the Renaissance period, the age of uh, exploration or the age of discovery. And now we've pretty much uh, transferred from this dark, dark material age to the electrical age, but there are still uh, many dark uh, material tendencies that tend to influence our society nowadays, as, as I'm sure everyone is aware. But things are getting better, and though we may be still very close to the Cali Yuga influence, uh, we are rising uh, fairly rapidly and the Treta Yuga will uh, take place in about another 2100 years and then that'll last about 3600 years until we're in the Golden Age and the cycle will repeat itself. People often ask, what are the higher ages like? You know, and why don't we find more evidence of the higher age? Well, I have to think that uh, man is uh, much more intelligent in the higher ages than he is in the lower ages. As a matter of fact, the, the ancient Rishis say that a man only uses a very small percentage of his intellectual capacity in the, the dark period of Kali Yuga, maybe 25% towards the end of that Yuga, whereas he would use maybe 50% by the end of the uh, electrical cycle, the Dupara Yuga, seventy-five percent by the end of the, the Treta, and man is using all of his uh, intellectual capability in the golden ages. The question is often asked why don't we see evidence of, of a much higher civilization and I think it's because as we gain intelligence we realize that the world we're building right now in this heavy part of the Dwapara Yuga when we're still very materially oriented but just starting to uh, harness the finer forces is a very stressful one. Uh, if we just keep building buildings and machines and, and more freeways and uh, raise the level of uh, stress in the world, uh, it's not not a pretty picture for the future. I, I intuitively feel that the golden age is one that's typified by a return to an agro-based society where man realizes the beauties and benefits of nature and lives more in tune with nature. And, and so perhaps man doesn't build as many uh, large structures as he needs to. Particularly probably not out of metals that carry certain vibrations and oriented in haphazard ways the way cities are built nowadays we do find things we might find them uh, out of stone and uh, have a different vibration they'll often be aligned uh, with stars or certain uh, celestial events and I think that is more typical of the Golden Age the structures that we'll find.
1: In the legends and lore of each of these civilizations and in the legends of tribal and traditional societies around the globe there are similar accounts of a global catastrophe, a worldwide deluge of former golden age. It seems perverse of historians and archaeologists to simply dismiss all these as romance, fantasy, and fabrication. Modern-day academics
0: discuss Egypt in terms of their beliefs. The Egyptians believed this, the Egyptians believed that. Supposing, in their arrogance, that we know better. They believed, we know. But suppose it's the other way around. Suppose the Egyptians actually knew about immortality, and it is our academic community, lost in their rationalist beliefs, who believe. The, uh, the Kali Yuga hits its nadir, or low point, around the time of the breakup of the Roman Empire, initiating in, in, the, in the Western world anyway, the so-called Dark Ages, which were indeed pretty dark, and over the Middle East and Northern Africa, um, pretty much a similar sort of Dark Age, uh, less recognizable in India and China, although the scholars of those periods themselves reference back to uh, much higher uh, stages of civilization in the very distant past. And um, if, if this way of looking at history is correct, we are, we're, on an, we're on an ascending curve at the moment. We're, we're climbing out of uh, an Iron Age and moving into the lower levels, an ascending Bronze Age, an interesting way of looking at modern society, because on the one hand we see, obviously we see very much a madhouse um, uh, devoted you know, millions and millions of people believing in little or nothing beyond economics and monetary gain and consumerism and so on. Um, on the positive side of that, um, what we do see is a tremendous creative and intellectual ferment much of it, from the spiritual point of view, very wrongly and destructively directed. But the ferment itself and the intelligence and the creativity that go into producing idiotic merchandise is nevertheless um, real creativity, real intelligence, real industry, a real ferment. And uh, on the the optimistic side, uh, if suddenly a there is something like a worldwide recognition of the validity of this ancient doctrine of of immortality, of the ancient realization or understanding that we are on this earth for a purpose, all of that or much of that or some of that um, ferment creativity industry could be turned toward or directed toward uh, beneficial rather than frivolous and destructive purposes. It's a possibility. It's a reason at any rate for a kind of cautious optimism whereas reading the headlines of any daily newspaper anywhere in the world would give us reason for nothing beyond uh, the blackest and deepest
5: despair. Even though we have these yuga cycles, we have these periods that affect the earth and mankind, it doesn't mean that every man exactly corresponds to that particular yuga cycle. It doesn't mean that our free will is lost, we're, we're just locked into these cycles. This cycle is just the context uh, for mankind's life, just as a, a sunny day or a rainy day is the context for us to live a particular day. So in this period of time, you will see most people are becoming aware of finer forces, uh, starting to understand uh, electrical phenomena. But th- you still have some Stone Age people around, uh, and you still have some uh, very bright people around. And I was asked the question, is there a way to to perhaps buck the trend, if you will, and live above the yuga? And I think there's always that opportunity to improve our circumstances because we do have free will. And just as we can reduce our awareness, our capability to operate in the world by taking drugs or eating bad foods or participating in uh, things that are not conducive to our well-being, and you do this over a prolonged period of time, you start to hurt your your intelligence and, and your ability to operate, so too can man improve his ability to uh, operate in the world and to experience a good life, if you will. And that's done by eating right, uh, living in tune with natural laws, meditating is a, is a wonderful way to accelerate the evolution, and there's some... Uh, techniques of meditation, such as Kriya Yoga, which have been found to provide tremendous uh, evolutionary benefits. So man is not trapped to any particular yoga that he finds himself in at any particular time.
2: and the Beta Sheeple narrative. Welcome to the Alpha Male Buddhist from Brooklyn podcast. My email address is alpha male buddhist at gmail.com. Again, thank you for listening, and namaste.